This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to From the Old Brewery, a podcast highlighting the work of students and staff at the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture. My name is Lise Olsen. I'm an artist working with the Sonic Arts and a research student here at the school. I am co-hosting today's episode with Ian Gross. Hi, Ian. Hi there. Yeah, I'm also a research student here at the school and working toward a PhD in creative writing. And we're both joined today by fellow student Isabella Endberg. Isabella is uh, undertaking a PhD programme in comparative literature. She studied for her undergraduate degree in MA honours in English and German here at Aberdeen, taking internships and an exchange year in Germany. Her academic interests are the environmental humanities, 19th century culture and the relationship between science and literature. She is, as we speak, currently on an archival stay with the University of Jena in Germany, working with the archive of the former private residence of Ernst Haeckel, Villa Medusa. So her project considers works by three scientific authors who have contributed greatly towards the development and understanding of ecology. These authors and their travel narratives include Alexander von Humboldt's personal narrative of travels to the equinoctial regions of the New Continent, Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle and Ernst Haeckel's A Visit to Ceylon. The project investigates how journey narratives written at different times and in different contexts have been utilised in understanding the relatedness of humans, organisms and the rest of the material world. It seeks to get a grip with the transnational networks of knowledge between these travelling naturalists. The tension between the exciting drama of encounter and the dry description of natural phenomena, as well as their distinct literary imagination necessary to conceive ecology. By doing so, the project argues that the three authors and their work effectively represent a material world that exists both within and outside of our human imagination. Isabella is joining us remotely from Germany. Hello, Isabella. Hello, my goodness, this is such a great presentation. I hardly need to speak about my project. <laughs> well, you, you shouldn't be so prolific. <laughs> Firstly, can I, um, can I talk to you a little bit about your background, Isabella, where you grew up and how you came to study at the University of Aberdeen? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was born in a small city in Denmark and uh, was raised into a bilingual family, which I think had a big influence on how I considered political and cultural trends, what people were talking about. So um, at school and in my free time, I always tended to compare cultures and attitudes to sort of different topics. And uh, at university, I wanted to continue with subjects that I liked in high school, which was primarily languages, history and uh, literature. But I also really liked the natural sciences, especially uh, natural geography. So um, the University of Aberdeen, they offered a five years uh, shared honors degree in English and German, which in its uh, third year included an exchange year in Germany. So back then it seemed like a perfect degree for me because when you study a language and its literature, you really also get to grips with its um, cultural and political history. 
Uh, so I thought, um, yeah, the subjects were very broad, you could say. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. So you you had this exchange here in Germany as as came out of your undergraduate degree, and just wondered how how did those earlier experiences um, influence your your current research interests. Yeah, um, Aberdeen was partnering up with the University of Bonn for English studies, so it was relatively easy to go on an Erasmus year there. Uh, Bonn mm. is the former capital of West Germany, and it lies at the Rhine River, so quite far away from where I am now. <laughs> Um, but when I was there, I mainly took courses in German literature and they were very specialized. So I got to pick some courses that really interested me. And I sort of defaulted, you could say, into taking courses dealing with the long 19th century. And that's an interest which really only grew in the last years of my undergraduate studies, where I took um, courses in 19th century romanticism and also in the fields of literature and science together with uh, Professor uh, Ralph O'Connor um, and in a German course with uh, Dr. Tara Beanie. I also had the chance to work with eco-criticism <laughs> and that was something I found especially new and exciting and this only got sort of enhanced with my own interest in the outdoors and the current environmental debates and all of these things sort of bundled together led me to what would become the topic of my uh, doctoral research. It's great, it's a, really, it's a really broad um, foundation for that, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. So your topic focuses on the work of 19th century scientific travel writing and its influence on our modern conceptions of ecology. What fascinates you about the 19th century naturalists and their travels? And can you briefly tell us a little bit more about each one of them? Mm, yeah, um, I, I suppose my fascination really started because naturalists and their travels seem to be important references for many authors that I read during my undergrad years. So, okay. for example, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, um, their works, they are known as sort of, you could say, precursors to science fiction and the scientific travels by especially Humboldt and Darwin, they keep creeping up in their literature again and again. <laughs> so, for example, in uh, Jules Verne's novel In Search of the Castaways, um, Humboldt's climb of uh, Pico del Taide on Tenerife is referenced while the main characters visit the island and they call this old Prussian naturalist and adventurer a, a pure genius. Um, um, so, so they just keep creeping up. And so for my own project, I, I chose to investigate Humboldt and, and two other naturalist travelers and all of their travel narratives were famous in their own right, you could say. But what's more important their scientific contributions are known to have contributed to the development of the ecological sciences, as mm -hmm. you said in the beginning. So I first chose um, Alexander von Humboldt's personal narrative, um, which was written between 1814 to 1829, because um, uh, Humboldt initi initiated what uh, today is called biogeography, at least in the English-speaking part of the world. And that's really the idea of vegetation growing in certain environments depending on climate, soil, and other uh, physical factors. And you could say it is an early consideration of the sort of interconnectedness of natural phenomena. 
And so um, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution through natural selection is only really sort of hinted at in his second edition of The Voyage of the Beagle from 1845. But um, it was immensely important to understand the familial interconnection between all living beings, that we are essentially all <laughs> a big family. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and lastly, we have the German naturalist uh, who coined the word ecology in 1866, and that's uh, Ernst Haeckel. And he coined this term sort of to systematize the natural forces that are initiating e evolution. And uh, his journey to Ceylon in 1881 to 1882 has to be seen in this, you could say, light of wishing to provide more evidence for the theory of descent or the theory of evolution. Okay. So there's a huge um, shift, I suppose, or explosion in, in general public um imagination and understanding of the, of the natural world at that time mm. and and obviously they're really central to that and I just wondered um, how you felt this uh, you might not be able to answer it but how you felt that their own the the, the naturalists own uh, personal attitudes and um, you know intellectual scientific and, and perhaps even personal beliefs might have been um, affected by the, the the general attitudes of the time did the you know the religious beliefs of the societies they came from from the time, do you think that affected how they approached their own travels, their own their own journeys? Yeah, yeah this is, um, it is a difficult question that I am still figuring out in my mm. thesis. So, um, it's quite, but, it's quite uh, a big question. <laughs> so, so, so being friends uh, or you could say colleagues with many famous German romanticists such as um, Goethe and Friedrich Schelling, Alexander von Humboldt, he journeyed abroad with this, you could say, rather transcendental philosophical stance okay. that nature had a type of wholeness to it. So we find this philosophical stance creep up everywhere in his journey and, of course, in his general idea of biogeography. And on another spectrum, Darwin was a Christian before he went abroad, and he was heavily influenced by natural teleologists such as William Paley, who basically looked for evidence of God's creation in nature. Right. But at the same time, Darwin was also sort of fascinated by the romantic sentiments. He also read Humboldt's travel narrative, and he was extremely eager to see tropical nature himself. And what's interesting about Darwin's journey is that his relationship to both religion and literature changed dramatically, especially with the realization of evolution through natural selection, okay. something his encounters and observation on his journey provided the evidence for. So, so his whole <clears throat> his whole sort of worldview in a way was was modified or shifted during the course of his travels. During his travels and certainly uh, also after his travels when he had time to reflect about right. what he had seen. So I think you, you could say that their philosophical and religious sort of preconceptions did shape the, the personal attitudes to the nature they encountered and which was then indeed depicted in their travel narratives, but mm -hmm. that also the at times really quite harsh realities of the journeys and the nature that they observed there um, also had an influence of how the travel narratives then later was edited and mesh um, and, and came to look in their in their published form. So in general, I find it extremely interesting to see how these 
scientific observations and actual feelings felt on the journey have the power to change their earliest preconceptions of the environment. So um, you say um, a distinct literary imagination is necessary to conceive ecology. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on what you mean by that. Uh, certainly, yeah. I, I think I'll provide an example. Um, so the problem with ecology as a concept, I think, is that it basically proposes these invisible links between elements in our surroundings. And that's incredibly difficult to visualize. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that you have to paint a tree that you've seen while you traveled yourself, how do you at once show that it provides food and shelter for some organisms that are living in it, that it can give necessary shade and building materials for humans living a little bit further away from it, but also that this tree prevents soil erosion and binds carbon dioxide from the air. You, you can't paint that. No. You would have to provide an explanation for it. Mm. And that is where literature really comes in. Literature can, of course, describe pictures in a sort of static sense, just as, as pictures, but it can also tell stories. Mm -hmm. And stories, I think, take their starting point in describing changes to a condition, whether it's a physical or mental condition, condition or whether it's a place, person or another organism it's, it's describing. Mm. So, so if you want to talk about the changes that the felling of trees can have for, say, uh, the, the worms living underneath their roots, uh, we do need a distinctly literary imagination. Yeah, and uh, I suppose a story just it has more impact in people's, you know, in the, in the audience that you're communicating to than, than sort of dry facts. It's a story that Absolutely. sticks in the mind. Yeah. Absolutely. Drama, drama drives our, you know, interest. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I wonder, you know, you mentioned about the editing process there uh, in the question before last, uh, how the narratives um, w were changed when they had time to come back and, and think about them. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the, the role of editing or have you been able to, 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 to see that, to pick that up in your, in your studies? and how that process might have evolved over time for them. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples um, you, you could talk about would be Darwin. Um, so Darwin um, has sort of these multiple editions of his travel narrative, which um, where you can basically change uh, the, or you can basically trace how he changes his scenes to try and sort of accommodate for these new ideas about um, evolution. So, for example, between his 1839 edition and to the 1845 edition, he makes this discovery of evolution and actually writes down his first manuscript of the original species. And then all of a sudden you see some words and phrases uh, that are used to describe some of the scenes from uh, the voyage of the beagle how they change and, so the first, and that's just really fascinating yeah you, you mean like the first hand accounts so he's given a first hand account and then and then in later editions you see that that's been adapted slightly to accommodate yeah absolutely right. mm. that's, that's great it's fascinating mm. 
So can you tell us about your archi um, archival residency at, is it Haeckel's former home? Um, Heckle, yeah. Is it Heckle? Sorry. <laughs> getting, um, getting heckled. <laughs> about his work and his travels in particular. And what kind of materials are you working on in this archive? Yeah, so at the at the moment I have an office um, in the Ernst Heckel House, which as a scientific institution officially belongs under the Faculty of Life Sciences at the University of Jena here in Thuringia in the eastern parts of Germany, but the, the people working in the house, they do research into the history and philosophy of science. But seeing as it's Heckel's own formal villa, it's also an archive and a museum of Heckel's life and works. Um, so you have to imagine that this is a big Italian villa-inspired house with these wonderful jellyfish uh, painted <laughs> on the ceilings. That's the medusas. These decorations, these decorations are uh, off the hand of Heckel himself, who was also a nature painter. Um, so I'm here for um, four months to investigate the circumstances of his journey to Ceylon a bit further. So as opposed to Humboldt and Darwin, much of Heckel's personal correspondences, early manuscripts and notebooks, they have yet to be published and digitalized. And this is especially true for his, uh, his excursion to the uh, British governed Ceylon, which is today, uh, today Sri Lanka. And um, it was undertaken in the early uh, 1880s, and that was during the sort of high point of British imperialism, and also shortly before Imperial Germany would attempt going into the so-called scramble for Africa. Mm -hmm. So this period of new imperialism, of course, shapes Hegel's ideas and the narrative to some extent. So as a, a German, and hence a stranger to both Britain and its island in the Indian Ocean, he observed and evaluated both the British colonists and the local population. But I still think the main interest and what's most present in the text was really describing how he got familiar with the flora and the fauna of the island, and especially the, the coastal marine creatures such as the jellyfish, which was his um, research specialism and the reason he traveled uh, to Ceylon. So I hope that uh, looking at such things as his personal journal, the watercolor paintings and the scientific work that followed after his journey, that it can provide some sort of clarity on the historic con historical context and most especially his own intentions with the travel narrative. So I also hope um, to understand better how the scenes portrayed in his travel narratives have sort of been fused together through his um, personal journal, his scientific measurements, but also, of course, the subsequent um, reflection of his time in Ceylon. Mm -hmm. So have you had a chance to look at his, his personal journal? I mean, that must be um, a bit spine-tingly, you know, it brings you quite close to, <laughs> to the man himself sort of thing. Have you had a chance uh, to look at that yet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I actually just this this week started looking at the the sort of the personal notebooks um, that he brought with him. Yeah. And does he write those with a consciousness that someone is going to read them, or are the are the is it like a, a private diary? This is my nosiness now kicking in. Um. Yes. Uh, he you can you can tell that he's noting down, for example, um, the the things that he won't 
perhaps be able to remember what mm -hmm. would be good to have in a narrative. So there are, for example, things such as his, um, um, like just noting what kind of people he saw, like uh, the names of them, because of course he met so many people, but uh, so that he would be able to explain it later. Um, that's uh, like the, the more detailed things. Um, yeah, they so are, like, they're, they're noted down and um, yeah, yeah. A writer's notebook, yeah, to yeah. call from later. It's interesting yeah. to hear that. So is there anything unique about Haeckel's travel account compared with the others? And what kind of insights do you hope to gain from your time in these archives? Or a, what could his journey teach us about the approach to the natural environment today? Can he teach us anything? Yeah. Um, ooh, uh, many questions at once. <laughs> so um, other things that make um, Heckel's um, travel narrative quite unique was that he first published his account serially in a magazine, oh, okay. partly while he was still traveling around in Ceylon. That's also one of the reasons why I can, you know, you can look after those things that were, you know, first published in the magazine and you can tell, okay, he definitely had an eye out what he wanted to sort of write and publish. So um, so roughly you could say the sort of narrative published was quite close to the narrative instance of his role as a traveler. So not as a scientific author who would uh, at home later be reflecting and hypothesizing about what he saw while he was abroad. So that means the natural environment described consists of many sort of first-hand impressions. And I expect um, that the notebooks from his journey will confirm this. As, and as I said, um, it's, it, it is what it looks like uh, so far. Um, so some of the chapters, they were actually aided, added uh, later to the later editions of the book um, of the travel narrative um, two and 10 years later, respectively. And the style of these chapters are very different. They almost take the form of lectures. And in some ways, they seem a little bit like um, Humboldt's travel narrative. So here you really get the sense that the narrative instance is further from the journey of itself. Of course, now in the archive, I've actually found out um, that these two chapters were indeed taken from his own uh, lectures after he got home. So this is quite funny. Um, so that you can definitely tell um, that the, the place that he has written, these um, different parts of the narrative have different forms. Um, so, so that's really interesting. Oh, in the same so, piece, you can see mm -hmm, the, the, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a cut and paste job. Yeah. yeah, and so here we're back at the strange dichotomy of seeing and understanding the environment around us. So Heckel might have had a tendency in his first chapters to sort of project his uh, preconceived scientific and artistic understanding of natural phenomena rather than to reflect about it later, uh, as we see in the last two chapters that were la later uh, added. But on the other hand, it may also be possible that these first-hand impressions have a stronger sort of link to the actuality of what he saw that's closer to sort of, you could say, reality. Um, uh, I was just going to say, so you think there's some sort of, uh, to begin with, a confirmation bias? He's looking to find evidence for what he already thinks in what he sees. Um, yeah, but there's also in, this, but the, the, the sort of um, first-hand immediacy of the impressions that he's taken in begin to take over in the, in the early writing he does anyway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, you could say um, it, this all led him to probably view nature uh, from a more deductive angle than Humboldt and Darwin when he traveled. So he already saw things in light of his own sort of early concepts of nature. Another thing we might think of is that um, journey itself took place sort of in terms of his own career uh, a lot later uh, than when he published his most, his greatest works. Whereas for Humboldt and Darwin, they published their main works after their journey. So he probably had lots of sort of preconceived ideas of what to look for when he, when he journeyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just to go, touch on you, what you were saying about the difference between imagination and actuality there. And um, in your own um, description of your, your work, you talk about a material world that exists. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to quote you here, Bella. <laughs> Both within and outside of our human imagination. And and I think that's that's that strange sort of interdependent dichotomy that you, that you mentioned that uh, you know nature sort of exists in and of itself, but it only exists you know as as it's perceived by us. And I wondered if um, is that something that comes out of Heckel's work, and is that is that something that you see as being central to how we might approach the crises that we face at the moment, the environmental crises, that that interdependency of that difference between uh, the you know, the, the nature and imagination and, and nature has been something that's in and of itself. I'm not sure I can relate it to Heckel just now as I'm still mm-hmm. working with yeah, him. Okay, sure. um, but certainly it's one of the biggest discussions in EU criticism. Um, so the study of culture and our environment. So uh-huh. both ideas, you could say, they present their own problems. Say, for example, if we think only of the natural world as existing within our own imagination via our own human terms, how do we then accept that it can exist without us? Yeah. And yeah. on the other hand, if we think the natural world is merely there, not something we should sort of form an opinion of, or mm-hmm. how, do, how do we even begin to perceive a so-called healthy relationship to it? Yeah. How do we get any type of personal attachment to it? And, and in some ways, I hope my project can show that scientific travel writing, which of course is shaped by the traveler's preconceptions and abstract ideas of nature, but which, um, uh, as we see in Heckel's travel narrative, or at least in the in the two later editions, <laughs> um, is also shaped by the author having to sort of readjust, reflect about these conceptions uh, by these journey encounters. And, and I hope that this can in some ways balance both ideas. Um, and I think this balance is necessary for how we approach the natural world. Because in this current age of environmental crisis, it encourages us to stay curious and open-minded in understanding what our own position in the environment really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so Do you think there was a change sense, maybe? then? That it was, that, was that the start of the change of thinking of nature as being separate? Because in the 19th century, that was a very much a thing, wasn't it? Um, nature being separate from from what they termed as man, you know, the human, and and today we're, we're moving away from that. Uh, and was that? Do you think the journeys were kind of central to the start of that shift in in uh, attitude? I think it, um, central. I wouldn't I wouldn't place it, okay. but certainly certainly many of the um, 
the, the things encountered that were then later, you know, reflected about, um, so say, for example, for Darwin, the, the idea that in its essence, you know, we are interconnected to, to nature. Um, I, it definitely had these strong, there were these strong impulses uh, in, in the 19th century that did start to, you know, change this idea of just uh, living with uh, living without nature a man being separate from nature um absolutely yeah so just a quick question uh, personal to myself i guess um did Heckel put any um, artwork or anything in his uh, notebooks? And obviously we can't see them, but could you possibly describe what medium he used? Did he use pencil? Did he paint? Um, what did they look like? Oh, yeah, Heckel is really interesting if you compare him with Darwin and Humboldt because he was a very visual person. I mean, um, you can find sketches as well by Darwin and Humboldt, especially Humboldt. But it seems to me Heckel really, really utilized his sort of artistic skills. Um, so just yesterday, in fact, I was um, sitting with um, yeah one of his small notebooks. You have to imagine, you know, a quarter of like an A4 paper. It's like a really small notebook, mm-hmm. and he's um, he's used the uh, two pages to try and uh, make sense of a certain landscape that he's penciled in uh, in the small notebook Mm. and you can tell he's trying to prepare two things at once so he's writing with pencil what kind of colors are in this picture and then at the same time on the other side there are the scientific names of the plants that are (laughs) that are in the sort of in the tree line then on the mountain what kind of like plants are in the, the 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 mountain zone and so on and it's just fascinating how it just you can see the way he he thinks about the place he's in is sort of both both in in a sort of artistic or aesthetic sense but at yeah. the same time um he he constantly also thinks about what kind of specifics are or char- characteristics um are in this place uh, yeah in in this more biological manner mm. that sounds wonderful yeah it must be it must be um brilliant to handle his original notebooks i i I'd, I'd love to see them i mean i don't know a lot about heckle but i just love to i love it loves that um, the way th- objects like that and uh, artifacts like that can sort of shrink the time between where we are and, and, where, and where they were, you know. Very impressive at the moment, uh, you know, sitting in his, in his house uh, and you, you have these, these books in your hand. Um, I'm very excited to see um, the actual watercolour paintings. So, of course, they're separate from the notebooks, um, yeah. um, but that won't be um, until maybe in, in two weeks' time or something. Okay. Um, yeah. Is it just when you get to them or is it scheduled in the, the, the kind of artifacts that you can gain access to? Um, I'm just taking one step at a time. Um, so far, I've been looking at um, the, um, the sort of material he produced after his journey. Um, so, for example, I was looking at those lectures that he was making after his journey. And, um, and now I've been looking at these um, these notebooks um, where there are a few sketches in, but they're mostly by pencil. And then uh, later I'll be looking at the watercolor paintings. Um, Such a great insight. So it's more, it's just, uh, you know, you can't look at everything at once. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, of course, some, I I might have to at some point, you know, go back to some material. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. It sounds it sounds like it's exciting you anyway. It sounds like you you're getting a lot from it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, final question. What uh, contributions overall do you hope to make uh, with your research? And uh, do you have any idea of what comes next? Um, yeah, as, you, as you'll notice, I have talked about Humboldt, Darwin and Heckel in a chronological manner. Um, I hope the thesis, in a sense, will be an addition to the overall historiography of environmental literature, trying to understand what the generic form of uh, travel writing has added to our understandings of ecology. But it's important to say, though, that it should not be seen as a sort of developmental or progressive history of the genre, but instead as a project that considers the ways in which the different scientific travel narratives encapsulated new understandings of ecology in this literary format. So when the you know, physical world international politics and the natural sciences all changed their faces during the 19th century. So did the ways in which the travelers imagined the environments that they traveled within their literature. So overall, I hope my thesis will show that some of the first environmental literature was created, you could say, alongside and not merely as a reaction to uh, the ecological sciences, that it was and, and not not just, uh, you know, authors creating fiction, fictional pieces that reacted to, um, you know, the, the sort of results of the ecological sciences. Wow, well, that's been um, it's an amazing insight, um, uh, especially to hear Heckel's artistic side, you know, and, and the idea that naturalists perhaps then were, were, there was less separation between the arts and the sciences and that they, the two could inform each other, which... I think is a nice aspect of it. Yeah, it is. It's. I. I. I absolutely adore my my project, and I still think it's incredible <laughs> that uh, in one and a half year um, that I've been um, studying so far, I am not tired yet of my project. That's, good, that's a good sign. That's a pretty good sign. I'm, I'm getting a bit weary personally but, <laughs> of my own. I mean, um, but it's been lovely to talk to you, Isabella. Um, okay, thanks thank ever you. so much, and uh, see you again. Yeah. See you in Aberdeen. (laughs) Perfect. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.